Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of the Movies of 1999. My name is Jason Hutchins. And I'm Craig Talbot. And in this podcast we watch one movie per week from 1999 selected by Bingo Machine. In last week's episode we rolled the Bingo Machine and out popped number 21 which was The Iron Giant. And we paired that with Disney's Tarzan which was an optional palate cleanser for us to watch midweek. At the end of today's episode, we will cut live to the next movie night where we'll be selecting the two movies that we'll be talking about next week. But in this week's episode, we are going to talk about The Iron Giant and Disney's Tarzan. So without further ado, let's get started. The Iron Giant is an animated film set in the Cold War era, weaving a tale of friendship and understanding against a backdrop of fear and suspicion. The story centres around Hogarth Hughes, a young inquisitive boy living in a small town in Maine. His life takes an extraordinary turn when he encounters a colossal robot from outer space, which has crash-landed near his home. The robot, suffering from amnesia and with an insatiable hunger for metal, appears menacing at first glance. As Hogarth overcomes his initial fear, a unique friendship blossoms between him and the giant robot. He names it the Iron Giant and quickly becomes dedicated to protecting this gentle giant who is more curious and childlike than dangerous. Their bond deepens as Hogarth introduces the giant to the joys and complexities of life on Earth, teaching it values and the concept of right and wrong. However, their peaceful existence is threatened by the arrival of Kent Mansley, a paranoid government agent. Mansley is fixated on national security and becomes suspicious of Hogarth's secretive behaviour. Driven by a blend of duty and ego, Mansley is determined to hunt down and destroy the Iron Giant, whom he perceives as a menacing invader. This conflict escalates, leading to a climatic showdown that tests the giant's true nature and the depth of his friendship with Hogarth. Throughout the film, themes of friendship, sacrifice and the fear of the unknown are explored, culminating in a poignant conclusion that highlights the power of love and understanding over prejudice and fear. The Iron Giant is a heartwarming story that resonates with audiences of all ages, teaching valuable lessons about acceptance and the courage to stand up for what is right. So thanks once again to ChatGPT for writing that for me. What did you think of The Iron Giant? Um, I actually really enjoyed The Iron Giant. It had been a while since I'd seen it. While I really enjoyed it, I also was fascinated by the fact that it was very different to the book by Ted Hughes. The book and the film don't share any real story elements at all. They're very, very different to each other. And I wonder why Brad Bird, the director, made that choice. This was his directorial debut. While they credit Ted Hughes at the end of the movie, the screenplay by Tim McCanleys, I think is his name, is very, very different. And so the, the whole story, it has similar themes to the book, but a very different story. So the interesting thing about the book is I had a hazy memory of reading it as a child and I didn't go back to revisit that until this week when I got the book off Amazon and and gave it a read. The only thing I remembered about The Iron Man, which is the the original name of the story, 
is the very beginning where the Iron Man topples off the cliff and is broken up into pieces. His hand goes off and picks up an eyeball and then he sort of reassembles himself that way. It doesn't work like it does in the movie where all the pieces sort of get drawn into one another. Mm, that's right. That It is a very different story. The themes of war and conflict and the fact that the Iron Giant doesn't want to be drawn into being used as a weapon are the same, but otherwise the details are very different. I wonder if Brad Bird did that deliberately for an American audience. He actually based the year on the year that Sputnik was launched, and it was also coincidentally the year that he was born. So perhaps that was something that he was trying to hark back to. And Brad Bird um, also directed The Incredibles and um, some other movies that kind of have the same visual aesthetic or the same setting, like 1950s nostalgic sci-fi kind of setting, don't they? Mm. He's definitely calling back to the 1950s American movies, uh, you know, the whole Cold War era, the idea that the Sputnik was a pretty scary thing for Americans at the time. They were terrified when the uh, Russians or the Soviets, as they were then, uh, launched the Sputnik. And so that is definitely called on pretty heavily in this movie. It's got a very high score on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's a very popular movie with both the audience and the critics. It had a 96% score on Rotten Tomatoes, an audience score of 90%. Brad Bird was inspired to make this film as a memorial to his sister Susan, who had died at the hands of her husband by gun. His pitch was, if a gun had a soul, what if it didn't want to be a gun? What if it didn't want to be involved? The Iron Giant actually says in the movie a number of times, I don't want to be a gun. And that's the essence of this movie. Having said that, the Iron Giant only says 53 words in the entire movie. There are yells and groans and other noises that it makes. But poor old Vin Diesel uh, didn't really have a big job to do in this movie. Maybe that's a good thing. I'm not sure. He, he didn't give a fairly robotic performance, I thought. But speaking of the voice talent, I really enjoyed... What was the name of the government agent, the character? Do you remember? I think it might have been Christopher McDonald. Oh, Christopher McDonald was the, the voice talent, but he played Shooter McGavin in the uh, Happy Gilmore movies. And as we were watching it, David said to me, Shooter McGavin. So if you've ever seen those movies, you'll oh, really? recognise okay. that character. Uh, Kent Mansley was Christopher McDonald. Yes, so yes, Kent. he's Shooter McGavin. That's right. John Mahoney, who's um, famous from the Frasier series, probably more than anything else. He was the general. And then Jennifer Aniston as the mum, Harry Connick mm. Jr. as the father figure, the scrap dealer slash artist. Yeah, Dean is Harry Connick Jr. And a unknown actor, Eli Marintol, was Hogarth. And I thought he gave a pretty good performance, actually. Yeah, yeah. All, yeah. all the voice acting was really good. One thing that I found interesting is there's three voice actors that just play incidental characters in this movie. Jack Angel, Bob Bergen and Roger Bumpus. Uh, Roger Bumpus plays Squidward on SpongeBob SquarePants. But those three actors have been in three movies that we've reviewed so far. The Iron Giant... Tarzan and Toy Story 2, all three of them voiced characters. Well, I was going to save this for later, but um, your favourite Mini Driver is actually going to come up this week as well. Because so. <laughs> she was in Princess Mononoke, wasn't she? Originally, Ted Hughes actually wrote the book for his children after their mother, Sylvia Path, 
committed suicide. So there's some fairly dark history behind this movie with Brad Bird's sister being murdered. And of course, Sylvia Plath was a very famous American poet, as was Mm. Ted Hughes. And I think that that's how they met. But we won't go too deeply into all of that. Uh, interesting little snippet of information is the two train men that Kent interviews after the train gets derailed. They're actually caricatures of Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, and they're actually called Frank and Jolly in the movie. They are actually Disney animators, were both known to be train enthusiasts, and they ran um, quite extensive model railroads, which they shared with Walt Disney. I didn't know that Walt Disney was a big train guy. They were they were sort of in character when they were doing the the train yeah the and, train scenes and that whole train derailment is is one of the major set pieces of the movie that's where the Iron Giant is destroyed for the first time uh, equivalent to the opening scene of the book where he falls down the cliff I suppose. It's interesting to me that we've somehow front-loaded all the animated films because in my list of 104 movies that I selected for us to watch this year, there's only six animated films and we've already watched three of them and then Princess Mononoke was our practice one at the beginning. So I'm not sure whether the bingo machine was loaded to favour animations or what, but there'll be few and Um, far between in the future. I think this one, The Iron Giant, it's interesting. It wasn't highly thought of by the moviegoers. I think part of the reason was that it was released on the same weekend as <laughs> which I'd be very surprised if we don't end up talking about it at some point this year. <laughs> I might need to bleep that one out. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it did very, as you can see from the Rotten Tomatoes scores, critic scores, the fact that it was nominated for a number of awards, it did well in all of those other areas. Yeah, I, I read that during their test screenings, uh, the audiences enjoyed the movie a lot more than what the studio expected, and they just hadn't budgeted very much for marketing. So they basically had a hit on their hands, but they didn't have a budget to, to tell everybody about it. People right, just didn't go right. to see the movie. It's funny. I think I commented on the movie night that it didn't look like a 1999 animated movie. Normally when they storyboard, they storyboard, as you're probably aware, the keyframes, and then it's up to the animators to fill in what they call the in-betweeners, as as you would be aware. But in this movie, there were several parts of the movie where he drew the in-between scenes as well as the keyframes so that the animators got it exactly as he wanted it. So apart from the animation, it was the visual style that made mm. it not look like a movie from that era? It, it looked like a movie from the 1950s or something? Is that what you meant by your comment? Yes, very, very much so. The art style, the colouring, all of those sorts of things look like a movie from an earlier time. Yeah, the Iron Giant itself is all computer animated and obviously it's a big angular robot that moves in very robotic ways, so it's perfect for CGI. And I think the combination of the hand-drawn human beings and the computer-generated robot worked really well. And we've seen that in a lot of the animated movies that we've watched, Princess Mononoke and Tarzan both use a combination of hand-drawn animation and computer-generated imagery, and they do it in different ways and to different effects. This year is a year where we're seeing animators learning how to do computer-generated imagery in conjunction with hand-drawn imagery. I think you'll probably get to a point in the 2000s where that hand-drawn aspect of a lot of movies disappears Mm. and they rely solely on the computer-generated look. Yes. 
Another thing that David mentioned while we were watching this movie, he came out with all these little factoids. When Hogarth yells, Bad Robot, David mentioned that there's a television production company named Bad Robot, which was started by J.J. Abrams. They made shows like Alias and Lost and Westworld and movies such as Star Trek and Mission Impossible and Cloverfield. But apparently that logo and the name of the production company comes from this movie. The Bad Robot logo does look very much like the Island Giant. I was interested to see, given that we had already watched a couple of animated movies, I was concerned that our audience on the movie night might be like, oh God, not another animated movie. (laughs) Interestingly, the universal comments from everyone on the movie night was that they really enjoyed this movie. I think there was enough in there for adults as well as children to keep it interesting for everyone. Yeah, there are a lot of funny moments. I really like their duck and cover PSA. Is that what they are? PSAs? And also the moment when the Iron Giant uh, eats half of the government agent's car while he's sitting in it. Yeah, there's lots of little silly moments like that. I think they put a lot of time and effort into trying to get things period correct. So the all of the military hardware, the uniforms that the soldiers wore, all of that stuff was period correct. It was from the 1950s. I'm suspecting that Brad Byrne is a bit of a 1950s fan, I guess. Yeah, if you look at the other movies um, that he's made, The Incredibles and Tomorrowland both evoke that era quite strongly as well. So that's The Iron Giant. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say in summary, Craig? It's interesting. This was actually produced by Pete Townsend of The Who. I'm guessing maybe they went to him for funding, perhaps. I think um, Pete Townsend had recorded a rock opera or a musical version of the Iron Man. Or the... Yes, that's correct. He had. Yeah. And I gave that a quick listen today when I was watering the garden. And yeah, it's it's not great. It comes from that era where they did the old concept album. But but I imagine that's why he was involved in the production of this movie as well, because he is it... a fan of the book. Oh, well. There you Just go. Offend all Good the old Who Pete fans. No, well, I'm not. I'm not a Who fan, so I. Um, shall we talk about Tarzan then? Let's move on to Tarzan, and we'll see what ChatGPT wrote for me. Tarzan is an animated adaptation of Edgar Rice Burroughs' classic tale set in the lush jungles of Africa. The story begins with a young couple and their infant son surviving a shipwreck and building a treehouse in the jungle, only to be tragically killed by a leopard named Sabor. Their baby is found and adopted by Carla, a kind-hearted gorilla, who has recently lost her own child to the same leopard. Carla names the boy Tarzan and raises him as her own, despite the initial reluctance of Kerchak, the gorilla's troops leader, who is wary of humans. As Tarzan grows, he struggles with his identity, feeling different from his gorilla family. He compensates by striving to be the best ape, developing incredible agility, strength, and the ability to communicate with various jungle animals. His life takes a dramatic turn when he encounters humans for the first time. He meets Jane Porter, a curious and adventurous young woman who has come to the jungle with her father, an eccentric professor, and Clayton, a shrewd hunter, to study gorillas. Tarzan is fascinated by Jane and learns about human culture and his own human identity through her. Their relationship blossoms, but it creates tension with Kerchak, who fears humans. Meanwhile, Clayton harbours a secret agenda to capture gorillas and sell them, and he manipulates Tarzan's desire for acceptance among his own kind to locate the gorilla troop. 
The climax of the film sees Tarzan grappling with his dual identity, ultimately embracing both his human heritage and his jungle upbringing. He confronts and defeats Clayton to protect his gorilla family, finally earning Kachak's respect and acceptance. The film concludes with Tarzan and Jane choosing to live together in the jungle, where Tarzan assumes his role as the new leader of the gorillas, bridging the gap between his human origins and his upbringing in the wild. And that's a summary of Tarzan. Craig, what did you think of the movie? Um, I don't know that this movie has aged as well as The Iron Giant has. I guess I'm just not a fan of that era of Disney song and dance movies as this one very much is. While I really liked Aladdin and some of the other movies, this one was a bit missable for me. It's not a terrible movie by any means, and it is one that seems to be quite well loved, again, by critics and the like. It uh, had a score of 89% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 75% audience score, so it can't be too bad. Whereas I found the Toy Story and other movies quite fun, I just found this one. This one is very much, I think, a kids animated movie. It's more aimed at children. I didn't I didn't enjoy this movie as much. Now, it is in that Disney style with a lot of songs, but the difference between a lot of other Disney movies is the characters didn't sing in this movie, at least. So this movie is quite different for Disney. They made a con- they had been receiving quite a lot of criticism for their sort of show tunes style of singing and dancing in their movies. So they actually got Phil Collins to do the soundtrack of this movie and he does most of the singing and most of the playing of the music in the movie and he actually won an Oscar for his music. The music I think was different. It was a departure for Disney at the time. Not the biggest Phil Collins fan in the world, I, I don't think. But I think he did a pretty good job on this movie. The music was probably better than some of the aspects, but the other aspects of the movie, to be honest. And it was interesting that it functioned as narration more than characters seeing what was happening to them directly. It was more of a narrator either summarising what has already happened or um, describing what was about to happen. So I thought that that was an interesting way of using these sorts of songs in the movie. So, Jaso, are you ready for some interesting little facts about this movie? I would love to hear some facts. In the books, Clayton and Tarzan are cousins, and there's a bit of an awkwardness as they discover that. In this adaptation, obviously, Clayton and Tarzan are very different people. Clayton is actually voiced by Brian Blessed, who's an absolute legend of an actor. He's known for having a very big, booming voice, isn't he? Interestingly, Tony Goldwyn, who played Tarzan, was not really able to do the the Tarzan scream convincingly. You know that. Anyway, the, tar, the the classic Tarzan yell. Brian Blessed went to the producer and the and said, "Look, I can do this. I can do this really, really well." Brian Blessed stood in front of this bloke and yelled the Tarzan yell in front of him. And immediately the producer said, yes, 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 you can do it. So I always thought the original Tarzan yell was a recording of a cat played backwards or something like that. It's not really a human sound, you know. Brian Blessed has actually said that playing Clayton is one of his two favourite roles. The other being, of course, his being King Richard IV in Blackadder. Another actor who's in this movie is Rosie O'Donnell. She actually played one of the gorillas. It's like Tarzan's um, best friend or something like that, isn't it? 
That's yeah, exactly that right. Yes, yes. And apparently, she modelled her performance on Chris Rock, who was the original person offered this role. I mean, we can't talk about Tarzan without acknowledging some of the racist overtones, which yes, Dis- I think Disney really glossed over those in in this movie by not having any African people in this movie at all. It really was just Africa was just a land of jungle and and animals. But Rosie O'Donnell, it was a lifelong dream for her to play a Disney character in a movie. And a nice little thing that I noticed on the movie night, I don't know if you noticed it as well, Jason, but the teapots and the cups in the camp were actually exactly the same as the ones in Beauty and the Beast, Yeah, uh, which I thought was quite cool. Yeah, because they do that one close-up shot of the the teapot, just Mm. just to sort of point that out to the audience. Tarzan also befriends an elephant, and that elephant is voiced by Wayne Knight, who was Al in Toy Story 2, and also Newman on Seinfeld. Well, I think I said to you back in the very, very first episode, the pilot episode, that it would be interesting to see how many of our actors reappear in movies this year. And I think we're already starting to see a pattern here of actors being really, really busy in that year or in those years leading up to it. So to go back to the animation, Disney developed some 3D tools uh, for animating this movie because one thing that's very noticeable is that the camera is constantly in motion and it's looping around Tarzan, going through the trees, through tunnels of leaves and things like that. And they developed this software called Deep Canvas that allowed them to model the forest and move the camera around. And I watched a really interesting documentary on YouTube today about how they use that in the movie. So Mm -hmm. they would actually do a fairly low resolution render of the forest where the trees were really just outlines. For each frame of that 3D animation, the animators would hand draw the characters into position so that they would be interacting with the 3D objects, but it was still a, a hand-drawn process. Now, they were using a tablet, so they were doing this on a computer, but they were hand-sketching a two-dimensional character inside the 3D scene. I was just going to say, do you know who one of the animators was? It's actually John Lasseter. Right. So John Lasseter was involved in this movie. He actually fell out with Disney over this movie. Uh, this deep-scale software that they had developed, he was involved in that. And one of his objections was the fact that Disney didn't use 3D for the characters. They were still hand-drawn. Mm. Yeah, I think they first started working on this movie in 95. And the, and the software's deep canvas, uh, not deep scale. What I really found interesting was that technique of combining 3D and 2D animation. Because the animators would also hand paint over the three-dimensional trees. So rather than having that textured with a, you know, as you would do these days, they had a two-dimensional frame of this forest and they would hand paint over the branches of the trees and things like that. And then the computer would map their brush strokes to a brush stroke on the three-dimensional surface of the tree. So it was still a very traditional 2D process for the animators. This is an example for Disney where this was one of the last movies that they made in this way. They then moved to a much more 3D-based model like Pixar. Pixar and DreamWorks showed Disney the way that they needed to go. And perhaps because of this technology that they were experimenting with, Deep Canvas, 
This at the time was the most expensive Disney animated film at $130 million, I think the budget was. The Iron Giant was about half that, somewhere between $50 and $70 million, depending on who you talk to. So it just goes to show you that investment in technology that really didn't lead anywhere. It was a bit of an evolutionary dead end, this hand painting over a, a 3D rendered scene. Now, Jason, have you ever been a bit of a fan of the Tony Hawk games back in the day? I loved the Tony Hawk game on my Game Boy Advance. You'd be pleased to know that Tony Hawk was actually involved with this movie. How was Tony Hawk involved? (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) So Tarzan's body has to slide down a log. And so to get that right, the animators based that movement on the movement of pro skateboarder Tony Hawk while he was using his skateboard. So they actually had Tony Hawk come in and do some... They actually watched him on his skateboard in order to get the slide of Tarzan on the log correct. Mm. So there you go. I think they were starting to do motion capture around this time because there is another uh, live action movie with a fully animated CGI character that was motion captured. Right. And and we'll, we'll be getting to that one day, I'm sure. But yeah, interesting that Tarzan slid around the branches of of trees in the jungle like a skateboarder rather than swinging from vine to vine as the classic television Tarzan used to do, I suppose. Well, I have another useless fact for you. I love these useless facts. Um, Apparently, uh, animator Glenn Keane, his son was very into surfing, skateboarding and snowboarding. And so Glenn Keane decided, after having watched his son do all of these different things, to incorporate those movements into Tarzan's way of moving around. So that's one of the reasons why he does all of that sliding, as you mentioned, rather than just the old classical swinging on the vine, doing his Tarzan yell kind of thing. They really liked this style. So they were our two movies. Our A movie was The Iron Giant and our B movie was Tarzan. Now, I suspect you preferred the A movie this week, did you, Craig? I definitely preferred The Iron Giant over Tarzan. I found Tarzan didn't age as well. Tarzan just felt old-fashioned. Yeah. Compared to Toy Story and compared to The Iron Giant and definitely compared to Princess Mononoke. Mm. It gives me a greater respect for Hayao Miyazaki's work as a director when you look at these other movies because other than The Iron Giant, Disney, the Disney movie is nowhere near the level of quality in any way, shape or form than Princess Mononoke. You can see the difference in quality mm. that was quite, quite remarkable. Yeah, in terms of storytelling as well as, as the animation. And did you know that The Professor was voiced by Nigel Hawthorne that you might know from Yes Minister? I'm a huge Yes Minister fan, as I think you uh, might know, Jason. And um, yes, Nigel Hawthorne's a complete legend. And again, is another person who I'd be very surprised if we don't hear from again in this year of movies. No, I wouldn't be that surprised. To find out which movies we'll be talking about this time next week, let's cut live now to this week's movie night. For the spinning of the bingo ball. So over to you, future Jason. Okay, thank you, past Jason. And we are cutting live now to the movie night where Dana is mixing the bingo ball and mixing it very well now that she knows the correct direction. And there's a lot of money riding on number 22. What number will it be? 47, number 47. So let's look that up. Um, 47 is American Movie. So there you go. That's actually the movie. It's called American Movie. It's called American Movie and it gets a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. 
It's a documentary about a bunch of independent filmmakers trying to make a horror movie. His whole life is making this one film. You, you have two hours tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and be an extra in a film. You get your name on the credits, man, as a producer. And of course, there'll be a whole crowd of people here, so we gotta make like a line where people can't go, have a hell of a lot of assistant directors saying, hey, hey, could you step back like five feet? I think my mom's gonna have to end up going out in the woods. I have my shopping to do. Okay, you gotta spread apart that way. All of the extras have just fell through, except for Mike Shank right there. We used to uh, do a lot of partying together, but I don't party anymore. <laughs> hey, Mike, make sure everyone has brown gloves. Does everyone have brown gloves? Oh, dude, dude, dude. I'm broke, man. I gotta get gas tomorrow. And dude's talking about making a feature film. Uh, the name of the film is Coven. Coven, Coven. Uh, Coven, uh, that's the proper pronunciation. No, no, Coven sounds like oven, man, and that's just, it doesn't work. <laughs> She wants to be in your film, Bill. Oh my gosh. You get your three grand back. It's the first line of the film, man. It's gotta be on the money. It's all right. Uh... Okay, I believe we can do this. Shot 37 here where my head goes through the cupboard. Every time we got together, there was something that seemed to go wrong. Oh, dude. I'm sorry you tried to put your head in this. Take 30. Um, cut. You gotta watch your teeth too, cause they clack a little bit when they loosen up in the mouth. Oh, now I see there's a frame there. Oh no, what are you talking about, Ma? Check it out when you look at the scarecrows. Oh, I mean, you get it? Within weeks, the film will be cut, finished for multiple sales. What do you think about that? Multiple sales to who? We get to see Americans and American dreams, and you won't walk away depressed after seeing this. This whole thing is turned into a theatrical mockery. Do you understand that, Mike? No. <laughs> well, you will. Would you buy this movie for $14.95? Hell yeah, man. I if I can find 3,000 people like you across this country, man, I'm in business. <laughs> and that's been paired with The Ninth Gate, which I think is low-budget horror, maybe. Are you a religious man, Mr. Corso? I mean, do you believe in the supernatural? Nine gates of the kingdom of shadows. Reputed to conjure up the prince of darkness in person. Only three copies survived. I'm convinced only one is authentic. I want you to get it for me. You mean the devil won't show up? Collector Dean Corso has just been given a mysterious assignment. What are you looking for, Mr. Corso? I'm not quite sure. It is a window into the past. Have you studied the engravings? Some books are dangerous. A gateway into another world. LCF. Who's LCF? Lucifer himself. And a power beyond all understanding. I'm starting to see things. Uninvited visitors, unfamiliar faces. I don't trust anyone. Coming? Watch with the we. They are two of us on there. But he's about to open up the greatest evil of all. What have you got for me? More than I bargained for.
have been men who have been burned alive for just a glimpse of what you are about to witness. And we'll be talking about those two movies next week. Now, before we leave, Craig, is there any final word that you would like to have? Look, I'm really looking forward to the two movies that we're going to watch this week, Jason. I'm sure that they're going to be fantastic and I'm sure our audience is going to love them. Now, as always, we'll end by throwing over to Margaret and David. But before we do that, I just wanted to point out that David reviewed both movies, Tarzan and Iron Giant, and rated Tarzan higher than he rated Iron Giant. And also Roger Ebert, the American uh, movie reviewer, rated the movies the same as David. He rated Tarzan, I think, half a star higher than Iron Giant. It is interesting that Disney, the Disney movie was the one that won an Oscar and Iron Giant didn't win an Oscar or a Golden Globe in any way, shape or form. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Mm. Bit of bias there, I suspect, from our film reviewers. They grew up in a Disney era, so maybe that's why. I think so, and I think it was a product of its time. Uh, Clearly, Iron Giant, in retrospect, is the better movie. So we'll see you all next week, and let's leave the final word to Margaret and David. Goodbye. The Iron Giant is proof positive that Walt Disney doesn't have the monopoly on high-quality animation. This excellent Warner Brothers animated feature, with a story a bit reminiscent of E.T., is beautifully designed and drawn, and carries some pretty positive messages against violence and the use of guns. Charlton Heston would not be amused. Director Brad Bird from The Simpsons also includes plenty of jokes about America in the 50s, with its strange attitude towards nuclear warfare, and its ferocious opposition to anything or anyone a bit different. Mark. You know, I mean, it strikes me that, you know, it's not just school holidays that parents want to take their kids to the cinema. Look, I think it's a pretty hackneyed story. It's done quite nicely. I'm going to give this three and a half stars. It's done beautifully, I must say. I'm going to give it four.